I'm reading Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm reading Luke 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Well, welcome to New AM this morning. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And there is really something special about Christmas, isn't there? Christmas is a time of year where pretty much the whole community can actually agree on something, can't we? It's a time to enjoy ourselves, a time for family and fun and food and rest and giving and playing in the pool and enjoying our, our gifts and presents. But one of the things I've noticed is we've always got to find ways of kind of keeping the magic of Christmas alive, don't we? So that, that Christmas spirit that we need to kind of sing with carols, that we sing like Silent Night, we've got this desire for that heavenly peace, or we sing joy to the world. There's something special about Christmas that we're always reinventing to keep alive. So over time, Jesus being the reason for Christmas, that's kind of got a bit boring. So we'll kind of work, work out something else. And then we've gone to Santa. All right, Santa, this big, merry, ho, ho, ho guy. That's pretty exciting, bringing the magic of Christmas, but even now Santa's getting a little bit old, and so we've had to start a new family tradition to try and keep the magic of Christmas alive. Now, I don't know 
if you know about this new family tradition, but it's actually taken the world by storm over the last decade. It's called Elf on a Shelf. Has anyone heard of this? Put your hand up if you've heard of Elf on the Shelf. Yeah, I'm indebted to Al Stark for bringing this to my attention last year at Wave. Let me tell you about Elf on the Shelf. Elf on the Shelf are these magical scout elves. They're still kind of attached to Santa, right? They manage Santa's naughty and nice list. Because if you make Santa's nice list, then Santa gets you some good presents. But if you make Santa's naughty list, well, then for our generation, you probably still get a good present anyway. But, <laughs> but this is the genius of Elf on the Shelf. The rules are you're not allowed to touch the elf. So I'm breaking the rules. This is a no-no right now. But he doesn't move during the day. He just sits somewhere in your house. And what he does, he just watches you throughout the day. And then every night, he goes off to the North Pole while you're sleeping to report on whether you've been naughty or nice that day. And each morning, the elf then returns to a new spot somewhere in the house. And so the kids have to go and find where that new spot is. My four-year-old daughter would freak out over the idea of this, the idea of some elf roaming through the house of night. I'm watching you. It, it's, a, it's also, it's essentially a parent's tool for behaviour management. You just have to keep pointing to the elf. But, but Elf on the Shelf has become so popular because it taps into that desire we have, that desire to make something magic about Christmas, to make Christmas special. And what we're going to do today, we're going ha- to see if, if we put Jesus on the shelf, if we get old, getting over and bored of the Christmas story, and just make him another part of Christmas, or he's kind of in the background of Christmas, we're actually going to miss out on the heart of Christmas and what truly makes Christmas special. In knowing the King that we really desire, the King that we actually need, and the King that deserves our adoration, we're going to look at the God's unfolding plan for this promised King and how He is to be at the centre of Christmas. And so it starts way back in Genesis, this kind of promise of a king, thousands of years before that first Christmas. In Genesis 49, in the first book of the Bible, Jacob, who's also known as Israel, he's blessing his 12 sons. And his 12 sons, they would go on to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of the Jewish people. And listen to the promise of a king as Jacob blesses his son Judah. In verse 8, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your, fa- your father's sons will bow down to you. In verse 10, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. And so right back at the start of Genesis, thousands of years before the first Christmas, we see this promise that a king will come from the line of Judah who will rule not only over Israel, but will have obedience of all the nations. And with his reign will come so much bountiful blessing, those weird, that weird verse in verse 11 about tethering his donkey to the vine and washing his clothes in wine. It's just talking about there's so much blessing 
that he can tie his donkey to whatever vine or thing he wants because there's so many vines to choose from. And you don't need water, you can just wash your clothes in wine, which is silly, but (laughs) it's saying bountiful blessing. And then over 1,400 years before the first Christmas, after God, if you know the story, his people get enslaved in Egypt and then God saves them out of slavery in Egypt. And as they're about to enter the promised land in fulfillment of God's promises, that he was going to make them into a people and give them a land where he would come and dwell with them, God gives them this future blueprint of what their king is to be like in Deuteronomy 17. And he says, when you enter the land your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Verse 15, he's to be a chosen king by God. And he must be from among your fellow Israelites. And the Deuteronomy 17 goes on to say he's got to be a modest king, not acquiring too many wives or, or horses or silver or gold. And he's to, to uphold God's law. He's to write it out for himself and learn from it and read it and live it out every day to revere God and love him with his, all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And he's also to be a humble king. He's not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And then as the story of Israel continues, Israel enter the promised land in the book of Joshua, but then you get the book of Judges. Even once in the promised land, dwelling with God's people, things turn south. There's murder, war, child sacrifice. And at the end of the book, there's this repeated refrain four times, over and over again, in those days, Israel, they had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so you're left in the book of Judges with this anticipation. Oh, Israel, they need that Genesis 49 king. They need that Deuteronomy 17 king. Maybe if Israel had a king, it would solve all their problems. And then you get to the book of Samuel. And Israel finally asked God, for a king like the other nations around them. But right from the get-go, there's problems. God gives them, first of all, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, and outwardly he is young, handsome, and courageous. He's a foot above everyone else. Insert Sam Hilton joke there. (laughs) But inwardly, Saul in his pride ended up following his own heart instead of following God. And so God ends up removing him as king. But then there's David. He's a handsome, ruddy shepherd from the tribe of Judah. And he's appointed by God. He's anointed by God. And David becomes somewhat of the prototype of the kings to follow him. Because he's a man after God's own heart. And through him, God really does bring the height of Israel's peace for the nation. And about a thousand years before the first Christmas, as Israel experienced this amazing time of peace, in 2 Samuel 7, David offers to build a a house for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was this box that was a symbol of God's divine presence living with his people and guiding his people. And he's, he's in his cedar palace, David. And he goes, the Ark of the Covenant, it's still in that tent that went around the wilderness with us. I've got to build him a house. But God says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
but it's not going to be a temple. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house, an eternal kingdom for your, that's going to come from your offspring. And he's going to be like a son to me, and I, a father to him, and my steadfast love will not depart him. And that psalm we had earlier, it affirms these promises. It's a coronation psalm of the king, Psalm 2, but it's more, it's not just about David, it's beyond David, because again, this king is going to be like a son to God but he's going to take possession of the ends of the earth. It's an everlasting kingdom across the whole universe. And then to respond to that king, serving him and celebrating his rule and the blessing that he brings, all they will be destroyed. And then even with David, we see he's just, he's not that Genesis 49. He's not quite there. He's not quite that Deuteronomy 17 blueprint of a king because he has many wives He's the best of the best in Israel. And, as, and at times he just keeps turning away from God in things like adultery and murder. He was the best of the best. And, but then after him, after David, comes Solomon as king, David's son, still from the line of Judah. And he's actually wiser. And he's, he actually brings more prosperity to the people of Israel than his father did. And he actually builds that house for God, as God had promised in 2 Samuel 7. Maybe he is the one. Maybe it's going to be Solomon. But again, he has problems. He follows his own heart, pursuing pleasure. He married many wives, just 700 of them. And he worshipped false gods. And because of his sin, in 1 Kings 11, God promises to discipline his son by tearing the kingdom away from him and splitting it in two. And then the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And then as we continue the history of Israel, we just see it's problem after problem after problem for the kings. Of the 20 kings that rule in the northern kingdom over about 300 years, all of them are bad. They followed their own hearts and did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every single one of them, and there is deceit, murder, assassinations, they completely reject God. And of the 20 kings that ruled in the southern kingdom, the line of Judah, it does actually continue. God's steadfast love remains. And there's three good ones, Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah, who mostly did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the footsteps of David. But then you've got five okay kings who are a bit mixed, and then 12 bad, who followed their own hearts, and again, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, just like the northern kingdom. And there's deceit, murder, sacrifices of their own children, and a complete rejection of God. 
And the problems of these kings, that it leads to the downward spiral as the kings influence the people in whether they followed God or not. And it ends in an absolute, utter train wreck. Now, I'm not sure if you saw Tiger King earlier this year. It's a story about a guy called Joe Exotic with a filthy mullet who runs, not that I can talk with his mullet at the moment, but he runs a zoo with hundreds of wild cats. And just as you start feeling from him and, and the misguided kind of upbringing that he had, the show, it spirals out of complete control when an animal activist kind of threatens to, to put the zoo out of business and there's theft in the show. This is a true story. There's greed, there's drug law, there's polygamy and a failed murder attempt is kind of the climax of the show with him going to prison. And people sat back it became this kind of cult hit. And they sat back just eating their popcorn, throwing their memes out, observing the car crash that was Joe Exotic. And it's so easy to watch such a train wreck as that and to think, Whoa, I am so much better than he is. But one of the saddest parts of the show is this moment in the show where he sits upon his throne signifying, I'm the king of my own life. And he says, this is the way I live. Ain't nobody going to tell me any different. See, the sad part of the show is that he is just living out to the full the playbook of our own culture. Don't let anyone tell you how to live or who you should be. Don't let anyone tell you what is right or wrong. You do you. You're the king of your own life. Sexuality, you do you. It's up to you to decide. If it's right for you, then you do that. Gender, you do you. Whatever feels right to you, then it's right for you. You do you. We preach, you are your own king. Choose right or wrong for yourself as long as you're being true to yourself. And Joe, he's just living that out to the full. And as he does, where does that playbook lead? He becomes more self-obsessed, self-serving, and it ends up a train wreck for his life. But this isn't a new playbook that's just come about in the 21st century for the West. Do you remember that refrain back in Judges? Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what followed in Judges as well as kings was the downward spiral into an absolute train wreck of debauchery and depravity. And there's pattern after pattern of God with his people giving grace first, then they sin then there's judgment and then he gives grace again and then there's sin, judgment and then he gives grace again. But it highlights the problem for Israel that it wasn't actually that they didn't have a king at the end of the book of Judges, it was deeper than that, it was in their hearts. They didn't have a king because they were rejecting God as their king and that's why at the start of Kings in 1 Samuel 8, we see when Israel said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, it's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. We're no better. <laughs> we live life exactly the same way and maybe your life isn't a train wreck yet. Maybe you think you're better than all of this. Maybe like David and Solomon you're in a time of peace and prosperity for now. 
But the history of Israel serves and the problems of the kings and the problem without kings, it serves as a warning for us. Because as the history continues, both the north and the south are destroyed and exiled, 722 BC in the north with the Assyrians, 586 BC in the south by the Babylonians, as God hands them over to their hearts, their sin, their rejection of Him. And, yet, and God's people and us, we're kind of, as we, as we follow the story, we're left wondering, the line of David, it's now actually ended. Will God's steadfast love continue? Have God's promises of this, this king failed? Where is the Judah king of Genesis 49 who would rule over the nations and bring bountiful blessings? Where is the king of Deuteronomy 17 chosen by God who is to be modest, one who is humble and bring justice and loves God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength? Where is the king of 2 Samuel 7 from David's line, the one who would be like a son and would establish his kingdom for eternity? Where is the Psalm 2 king that was going to rule over the ends of the earth? Is there any hope for this king? Is there any hope for our salvation? And then during that time of exile, God continues to promise his people through the prophets. And what happens, this promise of the king actually becomes tied to the salvation that this king, this future king will bring. So in Jeremiah, 600 years before the first Christmas, as he's prophesying to Judah, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah in those days, and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land in those days. Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it, this branch from David, will be called the Lord, our righteous Saviour. He will show the people what is right and wrong objectively. And he will save them into safety and peace. One from the line of David is still going to bring salvation and establish his kingdom. Or again, in Ezekiel, 550 years before that first Christmas, God through Ezekiel said, A day will come and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Their servant king from the line of David will rule over them, and then God will be their God. And so centuries pass. And for the Jews, we know that through these kind of 400 years of silence, there builds this anticipation for, for the anointed one, the Messiah, God's promised king who's going to come. And then nine months before that first Christmas, an angel, the Lord Gabriel, visits Mary. And he says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. If you have a look in Luke 1, verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God because of His grace, because of His steadfast love. You will conceive and give birth to a son, even though you're a virgin, and you're to call him 
Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so after the angel promises Mary, even though you're a virgin, you're going you're to give birth to a son and call him Jesus, which means God's is salvation. And he's going to be that two Samuel king, the son of God who will establish the throne of David forever. Here he is. And poor Mary, I mean, it's a lot to take on. All of these promises. I mean, what would you, if you're in that shoe and shoe in her shoes, and God had said, you know, you're going to, you haven't had sex yet, you're going to give birth to a baby. She's just worried about the mechanics of it all. So verse 34, she says, "How's this going to happen? Since I'm a virgin." All of the promises are such a human moment for Mary. All of the anticipation. How's this going to actually work? And Gabriel, he he just he wants her to stay focused, right? And so he says, "This is going to be." Not this mysterious kind of magical moment, but it is going to be a supernatural moment. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High, God himself, is going to overshadow you. He's going to envelope you so the Holy One will be born and be called the Son of God. And in verse 37, he reminds her, for no word from God will ever fail. And then on that first Christmas, Jesus is born. And the angel says to the shepherds, I bring good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the promised king who's going to bring peace, justice, bountiful blessing and salvation. The Lord himself has finally come. Isn't God's steadfast love, grace after grace after grace, despite our sin after sin after our sin, rejecting Him as our King, His steadfast love is amazing. And a time is going to come where Jesus, who's ruling right now in heaven, He's going to come back. He's going to return. And at that moment, every knee will bow before Jesus as our rightful King. And we have a choice. We either get to choose now to do that willingly and embrace him as the king we want, the king we need, the king we adore, or we reject him and face his judgment for eternity. See, we want Christmas to be special, don't we? And it is special, but not because of some contrived magic. Christmas is the moment that God's promised King entered into our world through the work of Himself, through the Holy Spirit. And people will say, how can you believe in a virgin birth? That doesn't happen every day. That's the point. We know Jesus' birth was a once-in-eternity event. It's meant to be special. It was the moment the king that we all long for, the king we want, entered into this world causing joy, bringing reconciliation and unity and steadfast love and eternal hope. That is what Christmas is about. Not magic, not Santa. But he'd be more than the king that we would want. See, Elf on the Shelf, while he creeps around of a night, what does he preach? You have to do nice things to make the nice list to get nice things for yourself. 
He teaches kids, Christmas is about you. Do good because of what you can get out of it. Doesn't that breed entitlement and selfishness? But God says, we're all on the naughty list. And we can't actually save ourselves. Left to our own devices, our lives will end up a train wreck, if not for this life, then certainly for eternity. But Jesus, he's not only the king we want, he's the king that we need. Because en- at that Christmas, he entered into our world to give us our only hope of rescue from sin. And he's the king we need because through his life, he lived perfectly, he upheld the law, he loved God with his, all his soul, heart, mind and strength. He was sinless and he was modest. He didn't have any wives. He didn't have much money. And even though we all rejected him, because of his steadfast love, he humbled himself by giving his life to rescue you from your sin. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to accept Jesus as your king. And that is humbling, to have to accept that you don't have your life sorted out, that you're not in control, that you're not sitting on the throne. He is. So he's the king we want, he's the king we need. And when you become a Christian, Jesus is also the king that we adore. In response to his steadfast love and the way he has first served us, God calls us to give our whole lives in service, worship and adoration to this king who reigns in heaven as we speak. Christmas isn't for me, it's for him. And so while those who are not uh, Christians will be celebrating Christmas this year for the food or the family or the holidays or the gifts, we're to take Jesus off the shelf and put him at the very centre of our Christmas. Because when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the King of Christmas. And we might do that through food and family and gifts and holidays, but all through that we give him the adoration that he deserves all glory, honour and praise. And so at your tables after this, I'm keen for you guys to think about how are you going to keep the King at the centre of your Christmas this year? Let me give you one example from the whole of our lives of how this might look like from an eight-year-old girl that I heard about this week on our staff Facebook page. Our staff Facebook page, it's good for two things. Sam Hilton posting funny photos of all the staff that we all have a laugh at. But we also use it um, to hear about all the ways that you encourage us week after week in living for Jesus as your King. And listen to this eight-year-old girl from our new EPM congregation this week. Her friend asked her, do you believe in Santa? She responded, gently, we don't celebrate Santa at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus. And then a friend asked her what she meant and then they spent the whole lunchtime. She got to explain why Jesus is the reason for Christmas. She invited her to rush and then that that girl that she shared about Jesus with ran out to her dad at school pickup and said, I want to go to rush, I want to hear more about Jesus. (laughs) Christmas is a time of year where people are actually more open. In fact, for For those who don't normally attend church, they're more likely to accept your invite to hear about Jesus and to come to something like Backyard Carols or Christmas Church. How are you going to keep Jesus at the centre of your Christmas this year? Let me be be a 
let me pray that we'll be a people like this eight-year-old girl who gets Jesus as King. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that despite our sin and rejection of, your, of, of you as our King, you sent Jesus as the promised King into this world, one who was humble and modest and sinless and perfect, full of steadfast love to save us and to bring us what we desire through Christmas, to bring us the peace and joy and purpose and fulfilment that is only found in you. Lord, we pray in response that we would adore you as our King, that we would lift you up, not just at Christmas, but with our whole lives, not just at church, but in our workplaces, in our, with our friends and our relationships, um, at the school pickup. <laughs> Help us to keep Jesus at the centre of our lives and, and adore him for the King who deserves our praise and worship and glory for all eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.